Welcome to Chit Chat Podcast. I'm Kanika and I'm going to be talking about how South Asian culture has shaped our attitudes and opinions on all the life stuff from sex and relationships to music to mental health. It's time to start some conversations. I'm back. I'm once more adorned with my chunky headphones sat on the floor in an uncomfortable position, which seems to be the only way that I record this podcast, which I haven't recorded a new episode for in basically a year. And what a year it's been. Um, yeah. I mean, let me, let's go back to October 2019, which seems like, I mean, it was just a whole different life. I was going to India for the very first time and I was super excited and I went and I had a ball and I came back and I thought, oh, I'm gonna recount my experiences on the podcast of a you know British Indian, someone of Indian heritage going to India for the first time. And I did that for a couple of episodes detailing a few of the places I had been. And then I'm not quite sure what happened, to be honest. It got to about, I think the last episode, which was my India diary of uh, Agra and Jaipur uh, came out I released that in like December. And then I think, you know, Christmas buzz, Christmas excitement, work was really busy as per. I kind of just lost my way a bit with the podcast and with everything basically that wasn't work. I just felt like I didn't have time for. I was either socializing and doing Christmassy things or I was working. And the podcast kind of got left behind a bit, but It gets to, it nears the end of December. And as always, I do the same thing every year when it gets close to my birthday. I do the same thing as it gets close to New Year's Eve. I get super reflective. I will just sit there and I'll just like think about my life and I'll think about the past year. I am one of those people. I'll just sit and stare at nothing, just like reflecting on the year, which I did coming up to New Year's Eve 2019 and I thought, you know what? 2020 is gonna be a great year. I'm just gonna, I'm gonna do so many things. I feel like in 2019, I really worked on myself. I really worked on figuring out myself, learning myself, learning to love myself, all that like stuff that makes you want to vomit, but it's true, it's true. I can't even try and deny it It, as lame as it sounds, it's true. And I spent the whole of 2019 doing that, focusing on my career. I just got my first job, really into it, really wanted to, you know, prove myself and had a lot to learn. So I thought at the end of 2019, right, I've done that now. I feel better in myself. I feel more established, 2020 is gonna be the year that I just shine. And I had so many aspirations and so many goals 
as I'm sure many people did. One of them was to move out. And I can confirm as I sit in my flat in London, that happened. I moved out of my parents' house, which was great. I moved out in February. I moved in with my sister and it's just really great to have my own space and just feel a bit more, you know, like I'm living my own life. And basically that was going to be the catalyst for everything else that I wanted to do. And so I moved out in February and I was planning throughout all of February and I had a trip to Goa. Yeah, that's right. In between this whole time of me recounting my tales of going to the India for the first time, I've actually been to India a whole nother time in this, in this time frame. Like that's how long it's been. I'm not even swept up in my first experience of India because I've actually been a whole nother time now. But we had this trip to Goa in March and it was for my mummy G's 60th birthday. And my mummy G is my mum's brother's wife. Um, so my auntie basically. And you're thinking a 60th birthday, that doesn't sound very fun. May let me tell you, oh my God, it was so good. It was so much fun. It was just like a group of women, like a range of ages in Goa, having a wild time. It was lots of drinking, lots of eating, sunbathing. It was glorious. It was really glorious. And I'll touch on, I'll touch on my thoughts on Goa later after I've actually done the next step in the journey, which was supposed to come out like last year, but didn't. When we went to Goa, that was when coronavirus was becoming quite the situation in England and in the UK. At the point when we left, we were deciding whether to go or not, because we knew that there was a great possibility something really bad could happen while we were out there. And we only went for a week, but that's how quickly things were changing at the time. And that's how quickly things were deteriorating at the time. But we decided to go anyway, because at that time, the cons didn't outweigh the pros. And I mean, Goa, like Goa in in March, when it was like all cold and rainy in England. And I'm going to look at the beautiful, like sunny beaches of Goa and be like, no, I don't think so. Um, So we went. And while we were out there, (laughs) things, things deteriorated. Luckily, we got back while we were out there. Some of our party, there were about, I don't know, there were between 20 and 30 women all together who went, uh, or who were there, I think. I don't know. Yeah, around that. And some flights got cancelled. Some people had to rearrange their flights to be able to get back home. It was at that point in time where shit was hitting the fan. Luckily, we were totally fine. We went to Goa and then we went to Mumbai for, I think, two days. Two days after we got back, the UK went into lockdown. We just felt so grateful and so lucky that we were able to get away and have this holiday and have this trip and have this amazing time before things got really bad and before we went into lockdown. I'm not gonna lie, as I'm sure, like... 99% of us did, found it really difficult. And to be honest, did not have the motivation to do much. 
work was crazy because obviously I you know I, I write for a living as well and we were trying to report on everything that was happening and it, it's really difficult now when you're here in November and you're thinking about everything you know about coronavirus and you're thinking about your attitude to it now but it actually when you try and remember the state of the nation or the state of the world in March like at the beginning of April we didn't know shit about the virus we didn't know anything we just had a fear we were just scared of it because we were kind of told that we needed to be scared of it and hundreds and hundreds of people were dying every day as proof of why we needed to be scared of it and we just couldn't go anywhere and we had to stay at home and we were clapping outside of our houses for the NHS and TV shows were you know old versions of TV shows were being replayed because there was no new material that had been recorded and it was just so bizarre like when you think back to how we were living in in April and May, and it's just so bizarre. I, I didn't have, you know, so many people were doing amazing things. They were utilizing the time so well. They were being really creative and they were finding time finally to invest their energy in creative projects or you know they learned a new skill or whatever it was I was not one of those people I was one of those people where I did my job that I got paid for and then afterwards did not have the energy to do anything else I exercised regularly because I have to for the sake of my mental health if I don't exercise regularly I'm just I'm not okay so I exercise regularly and that was it I didn't have the energy to do anything else. I didn't have the motivation to do anything else. I didn't want to do anything else. I just wanted to lie there. I thought about recording some episodes of the podcast. I thought about what I would say. And I felt like I had nothing to say because nothing was happening. People were dying and that was it. Like, and that sounds like a really bleak, pessimistic way of looking at it but I think actually it was the reality of life everyone was trying to be really positive and stay upbeat and to get through it but I did not have anything to say so I figured recording the podcast probably wouldn't be the best uh, at that point in time and then summer came along and things started to brighten up literally you know the days were getting longer it was getting brighter it was getting warmer we could spend more time outside I could work out outside which was great and I loved um I rediscovered running long distance oh well I say long distance I mean 5k I can't really do more than 5k because I'm a bit like lazy it's like you do 5k and then you stop it's not like oh I feel like I could carry on going I'm like no I've done 5k now I can stop but I rediscovered running and now I really value it. Now I feel like that's going to be something that I continue to do for the foreseeable future um, as like a form of exercise, but also just as a really great way of coping um, in terms of my mental health. It's a really, I found it to be a really great way to escape for a bit, to get it out. And also when I, I've realized that when I feel anxious and when I feel stressed, kind of pushing my body physically 
to a certain limit helps ease the tension I have in my mind, which is why I was leaning, I was, am leaning a lot on exercise to help me through this period. So summer, things were looking up and I really felt like, okay, I'm in a much better place now to try and figure this out. And then (laughs) as I sit here now with a glass of wine, this is my second glass, by the way. Um, So forgive me if my words start to slur. As of Thursday, we will be going back into lockdown, which is fun. (laughs) Things have started to get bad again. So while you can, enjoy this episode. But I don't know when you're going to get another one. (laughs) So... I thought that the best thing to do and the best place to start would be to carry on my India diaries that I started a year ago <laughs> from when I first went to India a year ago. Um, but it, it felt, I don't like leaving things incomplete. So I wanted to finish off the India diaries with my tales from Punjab and I'll touch on Goa as well, seeing as I've been to India again. Um, I'll touch on Goa and Mumbai as well. But thanks for tuning in, if you are tuning in. I really am grateful and I hope that this episode can offer some respite in these stressful and difficult and these challenging times. That's what everyone's saying, aren't they? These challenging times. And they are, but I'm kind of sick of that saying. But, you know, I hope that you can listen to this for an hour and just forget about things for a bit. Just have another sip of my wine. Um, I've started drinking red wine, by the way. This is another thing that's changed in the past year. So much has happened. Uh, But one of the highlights of my life is that I now like red wine and I didn't this time last year that is growth people that is growth I've matured so Punjab when we went to Punjab back in November 2019 gosh when we could travel when my biggest concern about traveling abroad to India was that I was maybe gonna get food poisoning and a dodgy tummy and like have the shits not that I might catch a deadly virus, but, oh man, God, it's actually so weird, sorry, it's actually so weird reflecting on, like, my mentality and my my life then, and how I think now, and how we all think now, and how it's just been, anyway, I'm just going to deep, had too much wine already, but so Punjab, I am Punjabi, my family's Punjabi, we are, my roots are in Punjab, so I kind of had... I quite, I had like quite high expectations, I guess, when going to Punjab, because obviously, obviously going to India, I had high expectations anyway. I wanted to feel kind of connected to the country and the culture, but going to Punjab in particular, knowing that all of my family was there and that's where my grandparents lived and 
that's where my roots were and that's where my dad lived I had quite high expectations for it to just touch me and for, for it to strike something within me the first place in Punjab that we went to was Amritsar which for Punjabi people and for Sikh people in particular is like Amritsar for Sikhs is like the Vatican for Catholics. It's it's a big deal. It's like Mecca for Muslims. It's like the holiest place for Sikhs. And you're supposed to hold it in really high regard and have a really great respect for it. And it is where the uh, Golden Temple is, which is like the place for Sikhs, you know? It's supposed to really, really resonate with you and it's supposed to really mean something to you as a Sikh person. My first impression of getting into Punjab, coming out of the airport, the first thing I felt, actually, and unfortunately, was the men and their eyes staring a lot. When you go to India as a woman, I don't, I can't speak for men, I don't know how men would perceive it, but I know that as a woman, as a woman anywhere, you are very aware, I think, of when you're being looked at, when you're being stared at. It's something that we live with every day of our lives, something that we are very used to in a way. The previous places I had been to in India, Delhi, Jaipur, Agra, it was there, there was staring, there was a lot of staring, there was a lot of male men staring, but I had braced myself for it and I knew that that was gonna be the case and I never felt, I guess, uncomfortable. It was, it was uncomfortable, but because I had braced myself for it, I didn't feel uncomfortable, if that makes sense. However, landing in Punjab, I felt like the staring and the atmosphere was more intense to the point where I felt like it was more threatening, even though they, they weren't doing anything, they were just staring. I did feel, I did feel like there was another kind of, I did feel like it was more intense than it was in other places. Um, and the thing is, Punjab is, is generally less touristy than like Delhi, for example, or Jaipur. It is it is less touristy. You're gonna have less tourists there. So in that way, I guess they're, le they're less used to seeing people who obviously aren't from there. So it was obviously partly that and partly just the general kind of attitude towards women in Indian culture as a whole. But so unfortunately, that was one of the first things I felt and I noticed. So we went to, and perhaps this was a mistake, but we went to the Golden Temple on Diwali, which was interesting. <laughs> so, so we went there actually the night before Diwali. Um, because we got to Amritsar at night time, it was dark, and we had we had a, a friend of our family member was there and he picked us up and he took us to the Golden Temple to see it at night. And we went there and we walked there from a hotel, it was walkable, maybe about 25 minute, half an hour walk. And again, I noticed on that walk there was, I don't remember seeing many women, 
there was a, a much higher proportion of men walking around. Uh, I felt maybe my discomfort with their staring has obscured my judgment on that but I did feel like there was more men out than there were women again maybe also because it was night and so we went to the golden temple it was beautiful it was beautiful I mean it's 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 a golden temple like what's not going to be beautiful about it and it's surrounded by water and I think anything surrounded by water tends to have a sort of majesty about it unless it's like the flooding in my garden which is just looks like a swamp but you know I mean generally like something shiny surrounded by water usually looks quite good <laughs> I've really I've really downplayed the golden temple I think that must be the biggest downplay of the golden temple ever god I'm gonna be hated for saying that no I mean it was it was beautiful it was stunning it was breathtaking it's adorned in fairy lights and it sparkles you know in the blackness of the sky and all that it's great it's wonderful however the environment in which it is in I personally did not find so wonderful we went and it was super busy and I expected it you know it's obviously a massive tourist attraction but not only that it's, it's somewhere Sikhs go you know to pray we stood, my sister and I stood with my dad and my mum to pose for a picture in front of the Golden Temple. And um, this guy who had taken us there was taking it for us. And this random guy, who I don't know who he was, but this random guy just came out of nowhere. He said to us like, oh, you can't, you can't do that. You need to stop doing that. And my parents were kind of being like, well, what's the issue? He was saying, you can't touch, like, as in to my dad, like, you can't touch. Because my dad had his arms, like, around my sister and my back. And he was like, you can't touch them. Like, that's inappropriate. Like, you're in front of the temple. You can't do that. It's inappropriate. And obviously, my mum and dad were like, are you fucking kidding? Obviously, they didn't say fuck, because holy weather. But they were like, they're my daughter's. Like, what are you on? And I think that this guy could maybe just tell that we were Taurus. He could tell that we weren't from there. Which is funny because technically we are from there. And if you asked a racist white person, they would say that we were from there when telling us to fuck off back to where we come from. <laughs> but to the people who actually were from there, we weren't from there, um, which was evident to them. And then this guy who was a friend of a family member or whatever, he got involved and he was like, are you joking? Like, that's their dad, don't be ridiculous. Basically, like, gave them what for. He left and went away. And then we had our little picture. So that kind of tainted it a bit, but we were like, okay, whatever. Like, it was just one guy, whatever, moving on. Um, and so we kind of walked around. So if you just heard that, that was me clicking my knuckles. Apologies. It's about, I just did it again, sorry. Uh, oh God, I did it again, I can't stop. <laughs> bad habit I just kicked my knuckles okay I won't do that again so we walked around the temple we didn't go up to it but we walked around and it was it was it was really busy it was kind of hectic it wasn't very peaceful but we'd also just had a long journey on the plane 
you know, perhaps I just thought, mm, I'm not really, I mean, it's obviously stunning, but I'm not really like vibing with this place. Maybe I'll feel differently when we, when we next visit, which was going to be, the next day was Diwali and we were going to go super early in the morning. I think we woke up at, I don't know, like four o'clock in the morning to get there as early as we could, because basically otherwise, if you don't, you're going to be queuing for hours and hours and hours trying to get in. So we woke up about four o'clock in the morning. We walked back to the Golden Temple to go there on Diwali, the festival of light for anyone who doesn't know, very significant for Hindu and Sikh people. We get there, it's already really busy. And we go to queue to get into the actual Golden Temple, which is by the way, in the middle of like this plain of water. So there's a big, kind of uh, bridge that leads to the Golden Temple from the exterior paths um, that go around the water. So you have to queue to, to get in on this bridge. So we were kind of not at the front by any means, but say the Golden Temple is at one end of the bridge, then there's this long bridge, and then that's where everything else is. We were where that's we were where everything else was. We weren't even on the actual bridge yet, but we were not far away from the entrance of the bridge. So we were queuing there. We were queuing there, God, I can't remember, for at least an hour. No, must've been longer than that. I actually can't remember how long it was. It was a really, really long time, but we knew that we were gonna have to because that's, you know, everyone always says, you wanna get into the Golden Temple, you're gonna have to queue for that long. But the thing is in India, queuing, isn't really their uh, their style. Um, <laughs> people were very, because it was Diwali as well, people were even more so desperate to get in. They were more pushy. They were more impatient. They were more convinced that their need to get into the temple was greater than anyone else's. There's not really any consideration for anyone around you. So there's lots of pushing, lots of shoving, lots of being pressed up against strangers uncomfortably, which in these coronavirus times, you'd be like, lol, that would never happen nowadays. Um, but it was, you know, I was literally so squashed up to other people, these strangers. And with the culture there being pushed up against men who have, you know, we've heard tales before we've heard women recount their experiences in that even in that environment by the golden temple of men acting inappropriately knowing that these women are being pushed up against them they literally have nowhere else to go you know copying a feel being overly close being uncomfortably close we were all uncomfortably close but there is a step too far um and unfortunately men some men do take advantage of that. And I've heard women confirm that, that that was their experience in somewhere like the Golden Temple, which really disappointed me. And it really frustrated me because I thought, you know, we are in what is supposed to be one of the most holy places in the world, especially for Sikhs. And you assume that, you know, 90% of the people there were Sikhs. And yet the men are behaving that way. And it's just, I think, disgustingly hypocritical 
especially when Sikhism preaches equality and equality of the sexes and preaches respect. I just find it disgusting and I, I, I genuinely don't think you have the right to call yourself a Sikh. And it's not just about being Sikh, it's about any religion. I don't think you have the right to claim that you belong to a certain religion when you uh, actively go against what that religion preaches or what that religion dictates. If your religion says, you know, equality of the sexes, equality of everyone, respect everyone, and then you're going and groping women, like, mate, no, like, it's disgusting and you should be ashamed of yourself and you don't have the right, in my opinion, to call yourself a Sikh when you're actively going against what the religion says and what the religion says that you should be and the attitudes that you should have. So I found that really disappointing and I found that really difficult to deal with. It wasn't comfortable. It wasn't a comfortable experience at all. No, at no point when I was by the Golden Temple, at no point did I feel comfortable. At no point did I feel at peace. At no point did I feel connected to a higher spirit or a higher being. I know that that's not everyone's experience. I know that that's just my experience. I know that my sister and my mum felt the same. Uh, I know that my dad felt differently. I know uh, it's not just because he's a man either. I know that other women who've been and said that they found it wonderful and they they really felt connected to it. I did not. I did not feel any connection to it. Unfortunately, I kind of, I kind of was hoping for that. You know, I, in terms of religion and my religion and calling myself a Sikh, I have a sort of discomfort with it because I think, well, nothing in my life that I do or that I decide, do I think, well, what would Sikhism say I should do? Or at no point in my life with any decisions that I make, do I turn to religion for guidance? Or do I turn to religion for comfort? That's just not a part of my life. In that sense, I'm one of those people who then thinks, well, then do, do, do I call myself a Sikh if at no point in my life do I ever kind of lean on Sikhism to guide me or refer to Sikhism for influence in my life? Because I don't. I don't. You know, I say I'm a Sikh because my family are a Sikh and they say they're Sikh because their parents were Sikh and so on and so on and so on. And I think that when you become, when you reach a certain age, as with everything, you have to question, you, you gain your own consciousness and you have to question everything that you've been raised with. Whether it's religion, whether it's attitudes towards women or attitudes towards homosexuality, you have to question what you've been raised with. I think that every person should go through that when you gain your own social political consciousness Every person is to think, okay, well, this is what I've been raised with, but is it actually what I believe? I reached that point in my, you know, late teens, as I think everyone does, you, you kind of like learning in school about things like that. And you, you might go to uni and you're kind of opened up to this whole new world and you're thinking more deeply about a lot of things and life. And yeah, it, it kind of crossed my mind. And I thought, well, am I actually religious? Because I don't think I'm religious at all. I believe that in the power kind of like of the universe, I think I'm spiritual. I think I believe in spirituality, but I'm a religious at all. No. Do I read mm -hmm. religious texts? No. Have I ever? No. Do I have any interest in doing so? Absolutely not. 
So I was already kind of feeling this disconnect with religion, I guess, as a concept. So when I went to the Golden Temple, I guess in a way I was kind of hoping for there to be some kind of feeling and for there to be some kind of connection to the place and for me to think, you know what, actually, yeah, maybe there is something here. I'm sorry, there's like, there's like a cat like screeching or maybe it's foxes because we get loads of foxes around here like fighting and I can just hear like something screeching. Oh my God, that's actually really fucking creepy. Anyway, and I didn't, I didn't feel any connection. If anything, being at the Golden Temple, unfortunately, confirmed my lack of religion, I guess. It actually confirmed to me that I don't feel a connection to religion. I, uh, I feel a connection to Sikhism because it's my roots and it's my history as a person and it's part of my identity because that's... Mm -hmm what I was born from. I'd be really interested actually in hearing other people, like how, how you feel, if you feel the same, or if you have something to argue against that I'd really love to actually hear your perspective on it. So do get in touch uh, with me and let me know what you think and all the contact details will be at the end of the episode. From being there a couple of days, literally a couple of days at that point, I wasn't feeling that connection that I wanted and I wasn't feeling any kinds of, um, you know, heartfelt, just like deep um, affection for the place, which I was upset by. And I was like, oh, what's wrong with me? Like, why aren't I feeling, you know, I'm not feeling connected to my roots or whatever. However, then we, while we were in Emirates, so we went to a partition museum and partition is something that is obviously really deep within Indian culture. If you don't know, back in the day when Britain was ruling India, Pakistan wasn't a thing. Like Pakistan didn't exist. It was all India. And then the British came and there was a fuss and India were like, we want our independence back. And then the British were like, no. And then India were like, yes. And there was big hoo-ha. I'm really, again, downplaying it massively, but I'm not a history teacher. So go on Google and Google it yourself. But it was big hoo-ha. And Britain were like, oh God, they're all uprising. They're all getting angry because how dare they want their independence? Who'd have thought it? A country wants their independence from a colonial rule? what? So Britain freaked out and were like, okay, fine, you can have your independence. But there was disagreements between the Muslim citizens and the Hindu citizens and the Sikh citizens. And obviously India is full of, relig full of different religions, but it was mainly a divide between Muslim citizens and Hindu citizens. So to appease them, Britain were basically like, okay, well then just split it. Just split it and have a Muslim bit and have a Hindu bit. And that's, that's it. And then they kind of fucked off. And then India were like, um, what? And then I really am not. <laughs> this is not an official, like 100% accurate history lesson, but seriously, like if you don't know about partition, just go on Google and Google it. Um, don't like trust that I'm telling this in a 
completely accurate way, but it's it's the quick version. It's like the speedy, gossipy version of what went down. It's just like, you know, if I was recounting like something on a reality show and I'd be like, oh my God, so he said that's not okay. And then Britain were like, okay, well, we CBA with you anymore and we just want to leave. So we're just going to put a line down the country and then you can sort it out yourselves. And then basically that's that's how partition happened. <laughs> in, in the short story, that is how partition happened. And so there was a big flea on both sides of the line of Hindus trying to get to the Hindu side and Sikhs trying to get to the Hindu side. Well, it was deemed the Hindu side, but it was basically the Muslim side and the side where everyone else was. But you know, Hindu rule uh, still is arguably, India is still you know, ruled by Hindus. The Sikhs and the Hindus were trying to get to one side, all the Muslims were trying to get to the other side. And in that mass violence, rape, murder, all that, all that jazz. And it was, it was really horrible, really horrible thing that happened, basically started by the British being like, mm, nah, okay, we like ruled you for all this time, but now we're just gonna go and you can just like sort it out for yourself, whatever. So we went to a part, but the thing is in school, I never learned about partition. I never ever learned about partition at any point throughout my curriculum at school. And I think that there was an option to, I did history A-level, and I think that there was an option to either do Britain and Ireland, which I also didn't even realise was a thing. I just didn't even know that Britain and Ireland had beef, to be honest. I was very ignorant. Um, but it was either Britain and Ireland or it was Britain and India. And uh, the British rule of India and my school chose Britain and Ireland. So, I, I never learned about partition at school. And I guess not, I, I'd heard about it. I kind of knew that it happened and I knew vaguely what it was, but I didn't really understand it. And I didn't really have an in-depth knowledge of it. So we went to a partition museum in Amritsar. There is where I felt moved and where I felt a connection to the country and to a certain group of people. And I think that that's always seems to be the case when you hear about people's hardships. If they are your people, you suddenly can relate. Not relate, that's not the right word, but you suddenly have a sense of appreciation and a sense of identity in a way, um, because it was your history. It's my history, you know, as a Sikh, as a Punjabi, Punjab is where, is it was mainly through Punjab that they drew that line. So my nan, my nanny, for example, uh, and I think maybe my grandma as well, I'm not too sure. My nan was actually born and lived in what is now Pakistan. But obviously back in the day, it wasn't, it was just India. But that's where she was born and that's where she lived to begin with. Um, and then her family fled. I did actually feel it was really moving. Obviously, I think when you when you read anything about a, a group of people that were persecuted um, and murdered and the women, you know, raped and children killed and stolen, hearing about that, it doesn't matter who you are and it doesn't matter who they are, obviously it's moving. But it was, I did actually feel that on a deeper level than I did feel like that was actually maybe the first time in Punjab that I felt like, yeah, these are actually 
my people and this is this is my roots and this is my history and this is where I came from so I'm really glad that we went there and I learned that so then again following on from partition we went to the border we went to the border it's called um the Wagga border it's where India meets Pakistan it's like a big deal because of partition and because of everything that so we went there and I wasn't really sure what to expect. I kind of, if you've ever seen, oh, what is it? I think it's Mehuna, the Bollywood film. And there's a scene in that film where people cross over the border and then like the people on the other side of the border are all like crying because they haven't seen these people in like forever. I don't know why I thought that's what it was going to be like, but it wasn't like that. It was more a parade. It, not a parade, but it was more like a celebration, kind of like a festival, kind of like a pageant. And I found it uncomfortably nationalistic. I'm very proud to be British Indian and I enjoy, you know, taking pride in being British as well as acknowledging that there's a lot that we're shit at and there's a lot that, you know, we have a lot of flaws, but I also, you know, would claim that we're amazing and that British people are, like, great while also being, like, we're actually really shit. But, you know, I do... I have that pride for where I come from and I have that pride for my country, but there's a line. Even when people hear, like, I, I know in America it's such a thing to like have American flags everywhere. Like when I went to, I mean, I've only been to New York and Florida in America, but one thing I really noticed straight away was just that there were American flags everywhere. And it's like, yeah, I get it. Okay, we're in America. Like, I get it. You can stop with the flags. Like, I just don't really get the whole the whole flag thing. So even here, when, luckily I feel like here, we're not really that flaggy. We're not really like we're gonna fly our flags outside of our homes kind of people. So when I do see it, I'm like, why do you need to have that flag? Like it doesn't bring anything to the table, in my opinion. I just yeah. Um and I get I'm kind of uncomfortable with it. Uh I feel like it has notions of, you know, superiority based on where you live and where you're from, which can also lead to notions of racism often. So it's always been a kind of discomfort for me. It's always been something that I've not really vibed with. So when we went to the border, I just found it so bizarre. Like it was like a party and people were like dancing in the, in, so there was a gate. So it's like a stadium, it's like an open air stadium and you're all sitting on these seats all the way around and the gate is in the middle and there's these guards there on the India side and on the Pakistan side and all these people go down to the middle. They don't let anyone go down. You have to be like selected somehow, I don't know. But it was, I think it was like almost all women and children and they were all dancing and they were dancing to Jai Ho but it wasn't the Pussycat Dolls version, it was like the actual version, like the Indian version. And they were, you know, dancing to other Indian music and they were just like really buzzing. They were like really jazzed to be there and, and dancing at the border. And I was like, am I missing something? I just didn't get it. I mean, so I was like, okay, 
cool. So you're like gassed that we're here. Great. But why? I was like, I don't really get why this is such a like reason to be so dancey and excited. But I was like, you know, maybe I'm just missing something. Maybe I'm just not getting it, whatever. So they were dancing and it was cute. It was fun. Like everyone was like, it was like we were watching a sports match and we were like cheering India and the other side were like cheering on Pakistan, except for no one was like, there was no game. Like people were just there cheering and like blowing and had like the India flag painted on their face and were like flying the flags. And I was just like, what is this? I didn't realize it was going to be such a parade of why we are better than you. And as we know, India and Pakistan don't have the greatest relationship. They're not exactly pals, the countries. And a lot of that does stem from partition and everything that happened then. Obviously, it's a lot deeper than that. There's a lot more politics involved nowadays. Lots of things have happened since then, but a lot of it does lie in partition and in that history. Partition ruined the country in so many ways. So many people died. So many people lost their lives and it stirred up such hostility between religions that exists now, today. And it was like they were celebrating that. And having just been to the Partition Museum, where it was basically like, look at all the ways Partition was bad and look at all the people it killed and, you know, India should have never been split. And then suddenly coming to the border and they were so overly enthusiastic about there being a divide and it was almost like a celebration and a promotion of the divide rather than of actually the need for there to be some kind of unity between the two countries and in turn religions which I just I just felt like it was more enforcing the divide and enforce it was more like a celebration of the differences rather than the similarities and rather than the fact that actually you were all one at one point in history like don't forget that you were all one country and now you're trying to be like we're better than you you suck like it had very much those vibes to me and again maybe I read it wrong I know you know I've heard other people who went there and they felt differently they felt like it was just a bit of fun they felt like you know, it was just fun and it was just like a parade kind of thing and it was just a celebration and you could just be proud to be Indian. And yeah, I got that to an extent. Repeatedly, like the crowd was saying, um, Hindustan Zindabar, which is like long live. Hindustan is what India, like again, used to be called or like still is called by some people as Hindustan, which again, I think... India is a country filled with so many different religions and to call it Hindustan does a disservice to all of those other religions and plays into the current state of the government in India. It's very, it is very nationalistic. It's a Hindu nationalist government at the moment in power. And so it was kind of playing into that. I felt like just by repeatedly being like Hindustan, you're excluding all those other religions that exist in India and make India what it is but also it was repeatedly like there was a there was a guard guy but I don't think he was actual guard because I could take him like I looking at him I was like mate I could take you I think he was just there as like the show he was the one with the mic and he was the one there shouting all of these chants and getting the crowd all riled up 
he was saying like repeatedly like he'd shout like Hindustan and then the crowd would be like Zindabad and it was so I don't know I didn't find it enjoyable I found it aggressive I found it uncomfortable I found it too much I was I mean I'm a bit low-key anyway so I was a bit like gosh just pipe down will ya I was a bit like oh come on now you've done it a couple of times you can stop now but it went on and on and on eventually the gates opened the Pakistan guards kind of came into the India bit and the India guards went into the Pakistan bit and then they were doing these marching things and then they kind of crossed back and then the gates closed and then that was it. And I was a bit like, okay. To be honest, I was a bit like, I'm not really sure what just happened or what I just saw. I'm not really sure I understand the significance of it. But what I do know is that I feel like it went on for too long and I feel like it was just a promotion of the divide rather than a call for unity. Another thing that I did really enjoy about in Amritsar was that never in my life have I been in a space where I've seen that many Sikhs. Sikhs are not in abundance in the UK. The only time I'm around that many Sikhs, well, not even that many Sikhs, but the only time I'm around a great deal of Sikhs is when I'm like at a wedding or I'm at the at the Gurdwara or we're at a family function or whatever, right? But like walking down the street, you're never surrounded by that many Sikhs. You're never surrounded by... Well, actually, I guess it depends where you live, but I'm, I'm never in that environment, really. And what I actually really liked was being surrounded by that many Sikhs. And it was like, this is actually really nice. And there was a level, despite, you know, the leery and the, the men staring and the discomfort, there actually there was an element of comfort in that you kind of knew that actually for the first time in my life, 99% of the people around me at all times are like me in the sense that they're brown and they're Sikh. And that never happens <laughs> like in my in my everyday life. That, that never happens. I guess also seeing the older Sikhs kind of made me feel connected to my grandparents in a way, um, who I don't have any living grandparents anymore. They all died by the time I was 16. I think all my grandparents had died by the time I was 16. So yeah, it was nice because I kind of felt connected to them a bit more in that way as well. So then from Anritsa, we went to Fogwara, which is where, which is a town where my dad was born. And he was like really excited to go there because he hasn't been back there since he was much, much younger. Um, I think it's since he was like in his teens or in his early twenties, he hasn't been back to Fogwara and he's like 60 now. So it'd been a really long time for him. Um, and he was obviously really excited to go back and to see, you know, see his hometown, see where he was born, um, see where he used to go as a kid and the shops he used to go to and all of that. It was obviously very different to the places we had been in India previously. We'd been to the very touristy places. We'd been staying at nice hotels. We'd been very privileged to be able to do that. Um, and then we went to Fagwara and it was like, Oh, <laughs> because you're not really gonna get any tourists in Fogwara. I mean, there are there are a few, but it's not really somewhere you'd be like, oh, I'm going to India. I must go to Fogwara. Like even Indians, some Indians don't know where that is, right? 
weren't there and there was it was so because it was not touristy at all it had a really different vibe but in a way it had a more authentic vibe it was a real insight into actually how just people Indian people live and how Punjabi people live in you know a town that's not super built up it's not you know commercialized it's not gentrified really it was a bit in places but it was kind of actually a real Punjabi town it wasn't a village it wasn't one of the villages and we uh, we did go to a village and I'll come on to that later but it was cool to see a genuine Indian town especially knowing that my dad came from there and that's where a lot of his family were still as well but I also kind of expected a way in a way for there to be some kind of connection when I went to Pagoda because dad's from there I thought, right, you know, this is actual, you know, but he's my dad, like, this is where he's from, I'm gonna feel, maybe I put too much expectation on myself to feel something for Fugwala. I didn't. <laughs> and my dad really did. I think he was really moved to be back there, obviously, because he was born there, like, it means something to him. It did not resonate with me in the same way. I kind of felt like, I was out of place. I did feel a really deep connection to my Nanaji's land, uh, so my mum's dad, in a village which was f further away from Fugwada, but in Punjab, so it was a little village, like a proper Indian, it's called the Bind, right? So it's the Bind, it's the village, it's, and when we mean village, it's fields and it's just houses, small, a small cluster of houses. And to see my Nanaji's house, it's not technically not his house anymore, it's been sold. Um, but he still has, he died in 2011, and he still has a great deal of land there. He's obviously his old house. So we went to see his land. My mum's relative was showing us around and he was explaining to us what parts of land belonged to my energy. And actually it was then I felt really moved and I felt really emotional. And I'm not quite sure why, to be honest. I remember standing there and I was just, I was literally just looking at fields and I felt really overcome with emotion. And I didn't really understand why at the time, and I'm not sure I understand why now, but I think maybe because my mum had talked so much about his land and for her memories of it, because she she's only been to India a handful of times herself. Like, she was born here, she wasn't born there. So she's only been there a handful of times herself. But then when we went to the actual house, which my nanny and nanny used to live in that was really emotional and I felt really emotional and I actually welled up and I was like can't cry can't hold in the tears I don't want people to see me cry but yeah I felt really moved actually going there I think also because I'd seen pictures of it and I'd seen I'd seen pictures of it and I'd heard all my cousins describing it and talking about when they'd been to visit and I'd heard my mum talk about it so many times and she'd talk about this mango tree that she remembered. Like that was one of her most like vivid memories of 
her dad, her mum and dad's house in India was this mango tree and the mango tree was there. And when I saw the mango tree and then I saw my mum by the mango tree, that like really got to me. <laughs> and I was like, oh my God, I think it's just because everything that I'd heard so much about was right there in front of me for the first time ever. And I'd heard all these stories and I'd heard all these tales from my family and now suddenly it was real and it wasn't just a story anymore it was in front of me but I think maybe what upset me the most was that I was so so happy to be there but I think what maybe really got to me was the fact that they weren't there and they never would be and we'd never be there at the same time and I think maybe that was coming to the front of my feelings was that I was so happy to be there, but there was also an acknowledgement that they were never gonna get to see me be there. And maybe they were, you know, depending on what you believe in, in terms of like, you know, when people die, you know, people say, oh, they're like looking down on you, whatever, maybe they were. Even now, like talking about it, I feel emotional because I felt, I, I don't, thinking about my grandparents is not a part of my everyday life. It's just not, I'm not gonna like try and, pretend that it is because it's not but in that moment I felt really really connected to them and I guess I kind of got that connection that I'd been looking for since arriving in India and since arriving especially in Punjab it was at that point where I thought okay so I'm not dead inside <laughs> so I'm not like just rejecting any kind of association with this place it is there and it is within me it just needed the, to be the right environment and it needed to be the right time we also while in Punjab went to some other gurdwaras and some other kind of it was like a museum and gurdwara rolled into one and it showed the whole history of Sikhism sorry just have another sip of my wine it showed the whole history of Sikhism and included partition and included how the gurus came about and their stories and their tales. And I actually, I mean, I'm a bit of a nerd when it comes to like history. Like I really like learning things, which <laughs> especially like history, like I, I find it really interesting. And also because there was a personal connection to this history. Again, like I'd never been taught Sikhism, you know, like I think we did like two classes on it in RS in school but I've never been taught Sikhism and even you know by my parents it's kind of drips and drabs here but I'd never had an education in this religion that I was supposed to belong to and so it was like yeah I knew all this stuff about it but did I know why any of it was the way it was no not really did I know the history properly of it no um so that was really I really liked that I really liked the education that I got about Sikhism and about the history of Punjab when I went I found that really interesting and really insightful and actually more than more than going to the golden temple more than being in Amritsar more than going into any Gurdwara that I, we went into a lot of Gurdwaras while we were in India more than going into any Gurdwara, it was actually at that museum. It was actually at all the museums that we went to <laughs> that I actually felt most connected to the country and I felt most connected to the history because I was actually learning about it. I, I actually felt like I had a leg to stand on to, to call myself, yeah, I'm Punjabi and to own it 
I, I felt like I had more of an ownership of, of that part of my identity because I actually knew about it. I actually had an education about it. And I wasn't just making these claims without actually not having a clue about any of it. So the our trip to Punjab ended. The reason why we went, basically, is because my uncle's sons... So my, no, he's not my uncle, he's my uncle, he's not my uncle, kind of is my uncle, hold on, I just need to think about this relation. I call him uncle. Oh God, I do know the relation, but I've had like two glasses of wine and my brain is going a lot slower than usual. Basically, I think it might be that he's my dad's mum's brother's son, maybe. I think that might be it. Anyway, his, I call everyone uncle, but he's like actual uncle. His two sons were getting married. And so <laughs> the trip, the holiday to India ended with their weddings. I had these, again, I think this is where I got let down. I had these massive expectations for how a wedding in India would be because weddings here are like off the chains, crazy everyone's like drunk and dancing and it's loud and it's just so much fun and it's crazy but it's fun right so I was like well if that's what it's like here in India it's gonna be like 10 times more it's gonna be like even crazier and it wasn't to be fair <laughs> like it was set up the whole thing just went down in a very different way. And I was very surprised. Like, so for example, the, first of all, the bit that I loved is that the Gurdwara ceremony was so speedy. I was like barely sat on the floor and it happened so quick. They got the ceremony done so quickly. Whereas here, whenever you're sat in the Gurdwara and you're waiting for the ceremony, oh my God, you're like, when is this gonna, like no offense to the bride and groom, so happy for your wedding day. But side note, when is this gonna be over? Cause I can't feel my ass cheeks anymore. And then it just goes on and on and then they do the ceremony. And then the Gyaniji, which if you don't know what that is, like the priest guy in the Gurdwara, starts talking about stuff and giving you life lessons and you're like mates we just wanted to see them get married give me the prashad so we can go and drink alcohol and dance which is so not this that would be massively frowned upon by Sikhism technically if we were going by the scripture they would not be happy with that but let's be honest let's be honest what most of us do so yeah you know it's like lovely ceremony great let's just you know they're married now let's let's get out of here but instead the Gyaniji starts like giving you a lecture on like life and stuff and you're like mate please honestly I woke up so early for this like just want to get my groove on but in India no super speedy there was none of that none of that business it was like yeah cool you're married now do as you please go go forth and enjoy the rest of your day, which was great, so I loved that. Then the reception, which is the bit that I always most look forward to in a wedding. I mean, who doesn't? Who doesn't look forward to a reception in a wedding? It's like, it's a big party. However, the receptions for these weddings, not the same. Like, I felt actually really bad for the bride and the groom because they spent a great deal of their time sitting in these two, like, 
thrown like chairs while people gave them shogun, which is basically like people giving them money to like bless their marriage and to like bless them. And it's like a whole big part of Indian weddings. But they legit spent like hours sat in those chairs with people just coming up to them, giving them money, la di da. And as much as I'm sure receiving all that money is like, oh, hello. At the same time, it's like, hey, I want to be up and dancing. I want to be like having a good time. I want to be eating with some mosse. I don't want to be here, sitting here, just like in this throne, you know, like not doing anything. But, you know, I mean, they that's just my personal preference. You know, not everyone is as annoying as me. Like some people are very content to do that. They were happy. They looked happy. You know what I mean? They were having a great time. Then it's none of my business what I would rather do. So the weddings were were cool. They weren't what I was expecting, but they were cool. One thing, one part of it, which I did really enjoy was um, the juggle, which if you don't know what that is, it's basically when I'm not quite sure I know the significance of juggle. But if you've seen Bender like Beckham, it's the bit where her sister's getting married and they are, she's dancing, they're dancing in the house and she's got like this thing on top of her head. <laughs> it's like a pot kind of thing and she's like dancing with it on her head and it also has like candles on it, which by the way, fire hazard. But now we've started using electronic candles, doesn't quite have the same effect, but I'd rather not set a light to a whole house. So I guess it's better in terms of safety. But yeah, if you've ever seen Bed Like Beckham, it's that bit where she's like dancing with a pot on her head. That is called juggle. And I'm not sure what the significance of doing juggle is, but you basically all dance around with this pot on your head. And it goes from one head to another head and you will take turns dancing with it on your head. Now, as I say this out loud, I'm thinking, why is this a thing that we do? But it is, and I kind of really enjoy it, and I'm not quite sure why. Obviously, in England, you don't really do... My mum kind of told me that back in the day, like when people used to get married, you used to go up and down the street, because that's what you do in India, you go up and down the street. So she used to say, you know, when back in the day when we were kids or before we were born, that's what they used to do when someone was getting married, they used to go up and down the street. Um, but also, I mean, we used to live in Hounslow. So you do that in Hounslow and no one's really going to be like, what the fuck are they doing? Whereas you do that, like my parents live in Buckinghamshire now. If you do that in Buckinghamshire, people are going to be like, I'm calling the police. What what did happen in India, which I really enjoyed, was that when we were doing juggle, we literally went round the streets. Like we were literally, I mean, it was for ages. We were literally walking around the streets and people come out to watch you do juggle and they watch they watch you because they know that there's someone's, someone in the town is getting married. And I actually really liked that sense of community. I really liked that sense of, you know, every, the thing is in Indian culture, everyone seems to know everyone in some way or another, which can be really damaging and can be really problematic because especially like the elders are constantly worrying about what other people think of them, which I think is really damaging and I think is bollocks to an extent and a cause of a lot of problems actually in the community and in the culture. However, in this case, I thought it was actually really, sorry, I've just got, I've got pins and needles in my foot. So I'm just, I'm just uh, adjusting myself off the floor. Oh God, one day, yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna 
do affirmations to manifest this. One day I'm going to actually have a proper recording booth and not have to sit on the floor in my flat to get the mic at the right level. Well, one place where I do think it actually goes really nicely is is in that instance where people know you, they know your family, they know that you're a family who lives in their town, and they're going to know that well, someone in your family is getting married because the juggle's going around, and your house is like massively decorated and lights. You know, everyone knows that you're getting married, and it's it's just like a huge celebration, which I really loved. Um, I thought that was really nice. That sense of like community and that sense of spirit of all being there together. But yeah, I think that's basically and that comes that comes to the end of my Punjab tales. In conclusion, it wasn't entirely what I was expecting, but it ended up being what I needed it to be. And again, at the time, I don't think I realised that. But a year on, this is actually the reason why I waited, it's actually all part of the plan, why I waited a year to record this episode. So I could have this year long reflection on my experience. Um, it's bullshit, I'm just making excuses. Um, but no, I think at the time, and when I actually got back, I would have said, oh, I don't think I actually enjoyed Punjab that much, but on reflection, actually, it was everything that I needed it to be. Even the bad bits, I needed that to affirm things to myself, make me realise things about myself and the way that I feel about certain things. You know, everything kind of happened for a reason. Yeah, that was Punjab. Goa happened in March, obviously. I mean, I just... Goa was amazing. I didn't actually see much of Goa itself because I spent a lot of the time sleeping, a lot of the time on the beach, a lot of the time drinking and eating and applying sun cream and obviously taking pics for the gram. It was just so much fun and it was just so chill. Like everything about Goa is so chill. We went to some waterfalls, we were all there like in our life jackets, like paddling around. Again, the only thing, the only part of Go that was ruined was the men, again, staring. Obviously we were a bunch of women, but we were of all ages. I mean, we went for my aunt's 60th birthday, you know, so there was a range of ages there. And I just think I lost my rag a bit uh, a couple of times when we went to these waterfalls you know obviously we're all there in our swimming costumes we were wearing bikinis we were wearing you know whatever kind of swimming costume we were wearing doesn't give anyone the excuse to just stand and stare i ended up having a go at a guy my cousin also had a go at the same guy I mean, I can't, I'm, I can't speak Punjabi very well. I don't know a word of Hindi. I mean, I probably know three words of Hindi and they're from Bollywood films. So he obviously didn't understand anything of what I was saying, but I hope he could tell from my aggression and the absolute look of disgust on my face that I was not impressed with him staring at us. And then he just like didn't go away. And then my cousin like started having a go at him. And she was talking to him in Punjabi. But again, I don't think, I think he must have spoken Hindi. I don't think he understood Punjabi. He was kind of just a bit like confused. But I think, you know, after all the shouting, he kind of got the gist that we were pissed off. But then another incident happened again when we were on the beach. It's a real shame. It's a real shame that I even have to 
talk about this really and it, that it's been such a big part of my experience in India it's a real real shame that such a prominent part of my experience and a lot of women's experiences in India is the men being leery and the men being so starey and making you feel uncomfortable so we were on the beach I was with my cousins and my sister and this guy was just literally standing there on the beach just looking at us in the sea and we even moved up the shoreline a bit and he followed us and he wasn't doing anything he wasn't saying anything he was literally just stood there watching some people would say well well there's nothing wrong with that what's the harm of that let me tell you the bloody is a, you know a stare we all know how uncomfortable a stare can be and when it's just relentless and when you know that you're just being watched because you're a bunch of young women trying to have fun trying to have a good time and there's just this random guy stood there staring at you so me and I'm usually the one who loses my shit in situations like that and my sister is usually the one who can be a lot more calm and a lot more reasonable she actually lost her shit which just gave me even more excuse to lose my shit even more so the fact that she like got angry about it, I was like, okay, well now I'm validated in my anger because she's expressing her anger. So we actually ended up confronting this guy. But I, I let my sister lead the way. We were, me and my cousin were kind of like her bodyguards, like behind her. We literally approached this man, like the three of us in a pack, pack of ravenous wolves ready to like tear him down. I, and uh, my sister was like, I'm gonna call the police, like if you don't stop following us. And he was obviously like trying to shake his head and be like, no, no, I'm not doing anything. And we were like, get the fuck away from us. And then she kind of said her bit about calling the police. And as soon as she said police, he obviously got like scared. So he was started, like backing away. And then obviously I had to put my two cents in. So I was like, if you come near us again, I'm gonna fucking punch you. Like, yeah, it was very aggressive. But I mean, don't be fucking sexist in front of my face. Actually, don't be sexist anywhere because I will find you. I will find you and I will sit you down and give you a long, hard lesson on feminism. So it's <laughs> not quite Liam Neeson, but it's Kanika version of that threat but no yeah I just I don't have time for it and mate if you're being sexist and you're being misogynist and I don't have time I don't have any time for it I don't have any patience for it and I don't believe that I should <sighs> but apart from that I mean Go was just lovely and throughout the lockdown throughout the first lockdown I know we're going into the second one now but throughout the first lockdown honestly the number of nights I would just lie there and scroll through my photos from Goa of like the good old days <laughs> to like keep me sane. It was, yeah, it was a lot, it happened a lot. I even had like a, I had like a holiday romance. I mean, it wasn't really a holiday romance. It was literally one guy who I spoke to for like two hours, one night and that was it. Now we follow each other on Instagram. <laughs> That's that's about it, to be honest. Uh, shout out to my man, Angelo. He's from Italy, but he was born in Goa. He's like Italian, but he's like, lives in Goa. Awkward if he's like listening to this. I mean, I don't mean, I don't think he will be, but yeah, shout out to my man, Angelo. 
We also went to Mumbai after Goa. We went to the Taj, which is a super famous hotel, and it is actually where there was a terrorist attack. There was a terrorist attack there in 2008, the Mumbai attacks. It was like a group of ta- uh, a group of terrorist attacks around Mumbai, and one of them took place in the Taj which is a super fancy hotel. All the, you know, celebs go and stay there. If you haven't seen it, or if you haven't, you don't know anything about it, a really good thing to watch is Hotel Mumbai. It's a film with Dev Patel in it, good old Dev. And uh, it's actually a really good, really good film, really gripping. So I suggest watching that, but yeah. So we went to the the Taj Hotel where that uh, attack happened. And we just, we, I mean, we mainly went for shopping, to be honest, in Mumbai, but because coronavirus was on the rise there, this was before India became, like, after America, India have got the second highest number of deaths. Sorry, no, that's a lie. Not second hundred numbers of deaths. They've got second highest number of cases. They've got the third highest number of deaths after US and Brazil. God, and UK is, like... So India is second and UK is ninth. So just think about that. Like compare the size of the UK to India. You're like, what the, like, what the fuck? That should not be the case. Bloody hell. Oh, I'm so sick of this. Aren't we all? This, this was before India got really bad with coronavirus. And actually at the time when we went, they were doing so, so, so much more than England to prevent the spread of coronavirus. Every single shop we went to, they made us use hand sanitizer and they took our temperature. Like every time we went into our hotel, they took our temperature, made us use hand sanitizer. We got back to Heathrow and it was like nothing. It was like, oh yeah, just come on in. No one asked where we'd been. There was like one hand sanitizing station and one little sign that was like, oh yeah, COVID-19 is a thing, by the way. There was nothing. In India, they had billboards up, massive billboards up so all around Mumbai about coronavirus, about washing your hands, about staying at home. And when you compare that to what the UK was doing at the same time, absolutely nothing. Like, it was insane. They were doing that in India in March, and we were doing nothing. But no, Mumbai was cool. Didn't get to see much of it. A lot of it was closed. A lot of the tourist attractions were closed because of coronavirus. I mean, I bought a nice outfit, so there's that. Didn't get to wear it, but I will get to wear it one time soon. Actually, that's one thing. I was thinking about this the other day. One thing I really miss about this whole thing is that I've just not had an opportunity to wear Indian clothes for like for a really long time. And I don't know when I'm next going to get to wear Indian clothes. And I'm kind of sad about it. I mean, mainly just so that I get a banging new Insta pic. That is it. That is the end of my Indie Diaries. I finally completed it. I don't know what's next to come. I don't know when it's gonna come. I hope it's soon. I hope I'm able to pull something together, but I just wanted to finish these diaries and I just wanted to conclude this section as motivation for me to carry on and for me to get my arse in gear and plan this properly. But please, 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 what really 
what I really love is when you guys get in touch. I've had DMs on Instagram and Twitter. I've had people, I even had an email one time, um, which I love. I love old school emails. Yes, email me. Um, I love people getting in touch who've said like, oh, I listened to a podcast and I really like this bit or I found it really interesting when you talked about this bit. I that, I really, really appreciate that. Um, so if you have anything to say or to add, even if you disagree with me about something, I want to hear from you. Um, let's engage in that conversation and all the details are to follow in my brand spanking new ending that I've created. But please do, final words, as we all find ourselves saying in these times, stay safe, stay well, all that shit. It's fucking tough for everyone, but you can do it, we can do it, stay safe. And I hope you all have a lovely rest of your day or whatever you're doing, yeah. All right. Cheers. Bye. You've been listening to Chit Chat Podcast with me, Kanika. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Kanika, B-A-N-S, and follow the podcast on Instagram at Chit Chat Podcast. You can also find it on Twitter at Chit Chat Pod, and you can also send me an email on chitchartpodcast at gmail.com. The logo was designed by Sana Chowdhury, whose other brilliant work you can see on Instagram at sunnac.design. That's S-A-N-A-A-C dot design. Please don't forget to rate, review and subscribe. It helps the podcast get noticed by others. Thanks.